Hello, and welcome to the Claremont Bible Fellowship Bible Instruction Time. We now turn you over to our speaker for the day. Start with two little pieces of trivia. One is uh, 20 years ago, Gloria and I went to Israel, and we went with the Friends of Israel, and Steve Herzog was the uh, the leader. He was associated with Emmaus, and so Dan Smith and his wife were on that trip uh, with us. And we joined the group in Newark, New Jersey, and there was 50 in the group, and we were the only Canadians. And uh, for those that have gone to Israel, you understand you're interrogated before you get on the plane. It's not a... It's not like joining any other uh, flight. Uh, when I've taken groups, they phone me in advance. You go over the list, and then at the airport, they interview me again and talk about every person. So we're at the front of the line, and the man wants to know how two Canadians got on this trip with 48 Americans. And, of course, they ask you enough questions that they know something about you, and if you're going to fib or lie, they're going to know. And so uh, his question was, is there anybody here that can verify that you're a preacher and, and that would know you. And it just happened that Dan and his wife were number 49 and 50 in the line. And so the guy marched us down the line to, to Brother Dan, and he graciously verified who I was, and uh, we got on the flight with his, uh, with his help. Um, so that was a good, uh, good thing. It was interesting, just uh, that year I had been uh, at a conference with Dan, and that's where we had met, so that worked out. Uh, rather well. Uh, the other little piece of trivia, just uh, uh, we mentioned uh, Guelph Bible Conference grounds, and uh, that was donated by a family by the name of McAllister's. I mean, it's right in the center of Guelph. I mean, it's, it'd be worth millions and millions and millions. It was their farm. But the McAllister's were the grandparents of Jim Elliott. So Jim Elliott's grandparents donated uh, that land uh, to the Lord's work. And so, a little piece of trivia. Uh, the three Elliott boys married three McAllister girls. And so Jim's parents moved to British Columbia, then moved to Washington State. And uh, so when he went to the Lord's work, he was commended from Washington uh, State. So let's turn our Bibles to Zechariah. And what I'm planning uh, to do is to... Uh, look at a large chunk uh, this evening because we'll never get through it. Uh, but I'm going to save uh, the last part of chapter 3 that talks about the branch and the last half of chapter 6 for Sunday morning. So we'll talk about the branch on Sunday, these two references to the branch, and there's four other references in the Old Testament. And so we'll save that uh, for Sunday. But uh, today, I uh, want to look at chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, and then sort of give an overview up to chapter 6 and uh, verse 8, because we won't read all those verses, so you'll have to do some reading at home. But we'll try and uh, answer Lanny's question as we go. And so remember, as we look at this, we're talking about the exposition, the interpretation. What does it mean? And so these are visions. Uh, what night of the year were they given? February the 15th. February the 15th. Last Saturday was the anniversary of these visions. Eight visions in one night that Zechariah had. So uh, his first six verses of chapter 1 had been given 
earlier uh, in the fall of the year before. So they started working on the temple on September the 21st, the year before. And then uh, Zechariah gave the first six verses about repenting and returning to the Lord. And so now they've been working on the the temple. Uh, It took them four years to finish. So the temple was dedicated in 516. So they started in 520. Now, I I know many of you are not interested in dates unless it's to a restaurant. But uh, it's interesting that uh, in 605 is when Daniel was taken captive. They started work on the temple uh, when they returned under Ezra in 635. So there's a 70-year period. The temple was destroyed in 586. So Jerusalem was conquered three times, 597, 586. And so it was completed in 516. So there's a 70-year period again, destroyed and then completed 70 years later. Of course, the city wasn't rebuilt until Nehemiah came along in 445. So that's quite a a lengthy period of time. And so there, it took me a lot of years sort of to figure out all these 70 years and all these things that are going on. But once I did, I found that just things fit together uh, much better, at least in my mind. And so when we look at this in terms of its interpretation, we recognize he's not having these visions about us. It's not about the church. It's not about Christian life or Christian living. It's to Israel. It's to deal with them and their future. And so as we said, we look at it, we take it literally, grammatically, historically, contextually. And so we take a very literal uh, perspective, but we understand it's imagery because that's what we see in prophecy. And so we can take something literal, but understand that it's, there's imagery involved. So here in chapter 3, he talks about Joshua the high priest. And so this is a vision he had. It's, it's in a dream. It's not reality. It wasn't happening at that moment. You read this and it looks like, well, this is what he saw. This is what was happening. But it's not actually physically happening. It's what he was expressed to him in this this dream. Now, back in chapter 1, verse uh, 13, the Lord had said, as he talked to him, with good and comforting words. And then you think of what Israel was like, and you might ask the question, or they might ask the question, well, how is it going to be? You've told us to return, repent. Uh, You've talked about what you're going to do for uh, Jerusalem and what it will be like in the future. Well, how's that going to be considering the way we are right now? Now, Haggai had talked about the importance of holiness, and that's where Zechariah is going to go, the importance of being holy, not just doing the work, but being holy to the Lord. So let's read in chapter 3 and see what the interpretation is, and then we'll draw some applications. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord and Satan standing at his right hand to oppose him. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is this not a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and was standing before the angel. Then he answered and spoke to those who stood before him, saying, take away the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, See, I've removed your iniquity from you. I will clothe you with rich robes. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. 
So they put a clean turban on his head and they put clothes on him and the angel of the Lord stood by. Now one of the things that happens often in the Old Testament is pronouns run together. Uh, if you're writing today in, in proper English grammar and you use a pronoun, it's got to apply to the last person who was named. And so if you, or you can't just say he did this, he did that. But you'll notice in here, talks about he and them and they without explaining who everybody is. And so sometimes uh, in the beginning here, it's uh, the Lord talking. He said, take this away from him. And so it's important to understand the pronouns as you go through. And so what's the interpretation here? What does it mean? What was the message for Israel at that time? Now, this Joshua, of course, is different than the Joshua who followed Moses. This is the high priest at the time. And Joshua, of course, is the the Hebrew word for Jesus. So the Old Testament name of the Lord Jesus would have been Joshua, Jehovah saves. In the Greek, it's, uh, it's Jesus. And so here he is, Joshua is the high priest. And it pictures him here, it depicts him as being clothed in filthy garments. And the word filthy here is the strongest word apparently in the Hebrew language for something that's, that's just as bad or, you know, degraded as possibly can be. Uh, you know, we would talk about something being not so clean. Well, this is just as bad as you can possibly uh, think up. This, the word is a very, very strong word. So remember, it's not literal. Uh, Joshua isn't standing there, you know, in front of anybody like this, but this is in the vision. He's standing there. And what should have been robes of glory and beauty, according to Exodus 28, are now uh, defiled and dirty robes. And so as this scene is unfolding, you have Satan there to oppose Now, this is the only time that Satan is mentioned by name in the minor prophets. He's referred to in some of the major prophets, but the only reference to him in the minor prophets. And he stands there to oppose. And perhaps the thought would be, and we'll develop this a bit in a few minutes, would be that uh, he might be saying to God or accusing God of of, uh, the fact that here is one who is defiled and dirty. How can you use him? How can you possibly use somebody like this? And so the angel of the Lord, the Lord Jesus, uh, responds and he says to to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Well, that's a phrase that we find in the book of Jude as well, where it says that there are uh, filthy dreamers who speak evil of dignitaries. They say things about uh, spiritual realms in in sort of... um, almost like a humorous or uh, irreverent way. And Jude reminds us that even Michael the archangel, when he was wrestling, uh, contesting about the body of Moses with Satan, dared not bring against him a railing accusation, but said to him, the Lord rebuke thee. Now, uh, I think there's a good thought in there in terms of our respect for the enemy. Uh, Some of you are old enough to remember Flip Wilson's line, the devil made me do it, which was to many people funny, but it isn't funny because the enemy is very, very real. And so he says, the Lord rebuke thee. And so I think it's an important 
a lesson that's underlined in the book of Jude. These apostates talk about these things as if they're not there or as if they don't matter, uh, making fun of them. But he says, no, we're going to be very, very careful. And the Lord rebuke thee. So Joshua is standing there in filthy garments. And so in verse 4, he says, take away the garments from him. And he says, in removing the garments, I've removed your iniquity. And so what is happening is the priesthood is being sanctified so that they can serve the Lord. Now Joshua was probably a fine, upstanding man. He was functioning as a priest in real life. Uh, he was leading the nation. But remember, in this vision, this is how he's portrayed uh, because of what the nation had become. And the priesthood was defiled. Uh, not him personally, but the office was defiled. And so the Lord is saying, I'm going to sanctify or set this apart so that you can be in service to me again. And so the filthy garments are gone. And he says, uh, see, I'll clothe you with rich robes. And if you read in, in the book of Exodus, the, the garments of the high priest were garments for glory and beauty. Uh, they're spectacular. One of the places you can visit in the city of Jerusalem is called the Temple Institutes. And you could actually Google it. There, uh, You can look at their site. But they have absolutely everything except for the Ark of the Covenant that they could start temple worship tomorrow. So you go through their little museum. They've got all the robes, the altars. They've got everything, all the implements you would need to start worship tomorrow. Uh, they haven't made an Ark of the Covenant. I think they, somebody thinks they'll find it some, somehow. But the garments are spectacular. They have the breastplate and the shoulder plates and so on. And it's, uh, it, they are garments of glory and beauty. And so the Lord says here, uh, that's gone. The garments are gone. The iniquity's gone. Now you're fit and ready to serve. A clean turban on his head. And you remember, with the turban, in the book of Exodus was a, what's called a mitre, or sort of like a crown. And on that was written, holiness to the Lord. And so the priest was to be uh, outfitted in these spectacular robes. Now, uh, just a by the way, on, in Leviticus 16, when he went into the uh, inner, inner holy of holies on the Day of Atonement, he left those spectacular robes off and only went in in the linen that was underneath, only in the white. And he left those other robes off. And I think that depicts something of the person of Christ and his uh, righteousness. So it's a, it's a wonderful scene that you have here of God's dealing. So that's the interpretation for Israel. Uh, good and comforting words. How are you going to do this? How is Jerusalem going to be inhabited and you're going to deal with us once again? Well, we're going to start with the priesthood. We're going to deal with the priesthood. He's going to also deal with the land, but he starts with the priesthood. Uh, so once that's right, then we can work on other things. So as you can see, we read this and it has nothing to do with us. He's not talking about you and I, and he's not talking about what we look like or what we're dressed like. But if you were to take an application from this, there are some wonderful applications. This is a passage I've shared at times at a Lord's Supper. It's a passage I've thought about many, many times relative to the Lord's Supper, relative to our salvation. And there's just some wonderful pictures or thoughts or illustrations that flow 
uh, from this. And so right at the start, when you have the Lord wanting to, to do something and you have Satan there opposing him, and we find that through Scripture, Satan both opposes and imitates. Whatever God does, he can imitate. And so you find a synagogue of Satan. You find he has not a uh, chaste bride, but he has a harlot. Uh, he has a city four square, or at least four square this way, not heaven as four square in every way. Uh, he has a doctrine, the doctrine of demons. And so whatever God does, Satan wants to imitate. Uh, the, the word antichrist can mean against or it can mean the imitation of Christ. And so Satan not only imitates, but he opposes. And so we find that through Scripture. And you think here, here's the Lord dealing with a, we might say by way of illustration, a filthy sinner. And of course, that's a spiritual battle, isn't it? Second Corinthians chapter 4 reminds us, the God of this age has blinded the minds of those that believe not. Why don't they see the light of the gospel of the glory of of Christ, because their minds have been blinded. The God of this world has blinded their minds. We all walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power, the air, the spirit, and now works in the children of disobedience. That's where we, we were. We were in that kingdom of, of darkness. And so there is a spiritual battle that goes on. And I think we understand that when we preach the gospel. Uh, you think when you're you know, at a funeral, and people are sensitive that they would respond, but there is a spiritual battle. Remember in Matthew 13, the seed is sown, and then he says the birds come and snatch it, and then the Lord explains that. He says it's the wicked one who comes and he takes the seed away. So there's an opposition uh, to the gospel, to the work of the gospel. But also when you think of uh, Satan stands in opposition to us. He is the accuser of the brethren, isn't he? He is the one that accuses us. Uh, some of you may uh, know this, this poem. It's one I've enjoyed and appreciated over, over many years. It is, uh, it's called My Advocate. I sinned and straightway post-haste Satan flew before the face of the Most High God, and he made a railing accusation there. He said, this soul, this thing of sod or clay and sod, has sinned. It's true, he has named your name, but I demand his death. For you have said, the soul that sins, it shall, it shall die. Shall not the sentence be fulfilled? Is justice dead? Send now this wretched sinner to his doom. What other thing can righteous ruler do? And thus he did accuse me day and night, and every word, O God, he spoke was true. But... Then quickly one rose up from God's right hand, before whose glory angels veiled their eyes. He spoke, each jot and tittle of the law must be fulfilled. The guilty sinner dies. But wait, suppose his guilt were all transferred to me and I paid his penalty. Behold my hands, my side, and my feet. Uh, one day I was made sin for him and died that he might be presented faultless before your throne. And Satan fled away. Full well he knew that he could not prevail against such love. For every word my dear Lord spoke was true. So that's a wonderful thought. You think of Satan in opposition uh, to us. And the opposition could well be as there's a somebody that names your name, but look at what they're doing. And what are you going to do? 
the judge of the all the earth, is justice dead? Deal with that one. And so the Lord Jesus Christ intercedes for us, right? We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, who is the atoning or satisfaction for our sins as well as for the sins of the whole world. And so Satan stands to oppose. And so Satan is rebuked. But the Lord says in, the, in verse uh, 2, the end of the verse, is not this a brand plucked from the fire? And uh, Andy was kind enough to find that phrase in uh, is it number 93 in the, the black book, My Redeemer, 91 rather, My Redeemer, uh, a brand plucked from the fire, from the burning. Uh, no, and he also found another hymn by Charles Wesley uh, with that same theme. And interestingly enough, uh, John Wesley had a picture painted. He was saved as a child from a burning house. And he had a picture of that painted. And underneath were the words, a brand plucked from the burning. And that was one of the motivating factors for his life and ministry. And so that's a lovely phrase. Whenever you start to think you're something or think a lot of yourself, remember you're just a brand plucked from the burning. That's where we're all headed, that he has plucked us uh, from that. And then, you know, this thought of being clothed with filthy garments, and of course it's true. He has taken our iniquity from us, and we've been clothed with the righteousness of Christ. God has made him who knew no sin to be made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. That's what that's what we get. That's where, that's where Joshua was. And so what a wonderful picture. So that's application or devotion. You, you see a story like this. Uh, you can't make that the meaning. You can't say, well, this is what God is saying to us. This is what it means. It means what it said to Israel. The priesthood is being uh, reformed, sanctified so they can serve me. But by way of application, you read this and you can start to think of what it says to you and how it warms your heart and how you can enjoy it. So that's that's the uh, a wonderful story. So let's just uh, briefly look at some of these other uh, stories in chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapter 6. Like I said, we'll leave the end of uh, chapter uh, 3 uh, for Sunday morning, uh, Lord willing. And so we'll go on to chapter 4, and we won't read all uh, these verses, but here you have these uh, lamps and olive trees. And again, this is in a vision. So he's not really seeing these things. I'm told that in verse 2, the seven lamps with the seven pipes to the seven lamps is a very hard thing to translate as to what exactly does it look like. Is there 49 lamps? Is there seven things feeding and there are 49 or is there only seven? Very hard apparently to to figure out from the translation what it is. And then you have these two, two olive trees and he asks, well, what are these? What do they represent? Uh, so at verse 5, the angel talked to me, uh, answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? Well, of course, we don't know. Zechariah didn't know. He said, no, uh, my Lord. Uh, if you go down to verse 11, then I answered and said to him, what are these two olive trees at the right, hand, right of the lampstand and at its left? And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that dip into the receptacles of gold, two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Then he answered me and said, do you know not 
not know what these are? And he said, no, my Lord. So he said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. So again, this is prophetic, but it's also portraying something. So it would seem that uh, if you look at chapter 6, it would seem that, uh, say in verse uh, verse 11, there's a mention of Joshua with this, with this crown. And so it would seem that uh, Zerubbabel, who was the prince, the leader, and uh, Joshua, who was the priest, are the two ones that he's saying, well, these are the witnesses, the testimony. But they perhaps prefigure, they perhaps prefigure uh, two figures in Revelation chapter 11. During the tribulation period, I think in the first half of the tribulation period, there'll be two witnesses. Uh, Their character and conduct will be much like Moses and Elijah, but uh, these perhaps prefigure them. But in another sense, they also prefigure the one who is going to rule as priest and king, the prince and the priest in one person. And we'll see that at the end of chapter 6, that Uh, priest and king come together in one person, in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the short term, it was these two who are standing to be a witness for the Lord. I think in the long term, it's looking beyond that uh, to Revelation chapter 11. Now, if you go back to chapter 4, verse 6, there's some great thoughts in these verses. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel you shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. So the mountain again is figurative. It speaks of powers. It speaks of those in opposition. He says that's going to be removed. It's going to be nothing. The plane speaks of the ability for expansion, nothing to, uh, to hinder it. And so he says he's going to put the capstone, the temple's going to be built. And then this phrase, shouts of grace, grace to it. Now the NIV says, God bless it, God bless it. Uh, some would translate it, uh, it's all of grace. And again, devotionally, that's a wonderful thought, isn't it? It is all of grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. Verse 9, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven to rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And so if you go back to chapter 3 verse 9, there's a stone with seven eyes. Uh, In Revelation chapter 5, there are the seven spirits of God sent forth into all the earth. In Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2, there's a sevenfold description of the spirit as well. Seven descriptive words are used of the spirit. And so uh, he says that uh, this is going to be accomplished. Zerubbabel has started it. He's going to finish it. It's going to be all of God's grace, not by might, not by, by, by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So devotionally, we'd look at that and say, yes, that's true. We recognize that in the gospel. It's not our eloquence. It's not our wisdom. It's not our learning. Uh, we present the gospel, the assurance that it's God's will that goes out and his spirit will take it and work. God's word 
he said, will not return to me void, but will accomplish what I have purposed. And so the, we, we believe that, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. But there's another interesting thought in here. Who has despised the day of small things? And I often uh, think of this in terms of how many of us have ever done something great for the Lord? Anybody here ever done something great? Great things happen, but it's because people do a lot of little things, don't they? And uh, it's, it's really true. Who has despised the day of little things? It doesn't look like much as the temple's being built. But, he says, something's happening. Uh, Haggai says there's going to be a greater glory in this temple than there was in Solomon's temple, referring to the coming of Christ. And so who has despised the day of little things? I don't know if you ever sang uh, the hymn, Little is Much, When God is in it, Labor Not for Wealth or Fame. Uh, there's a crown and you may win it if you go in Jesus' name. And so little is much when God is in it. Don't despise the day of little things. And so he says, that's going to happen. The temple's going to be rebuilt and these two are witnesses for me. And then he talks about, in chapter 5, about this flying scroll and then the last half of the chapter about a woman in a basket. Usually when that happens, it means time to quit. <laughs> that's never happened. I think that's the alarm to wake somebody up. <laughs> so the flying scroll, again, this is not, it is not literal. It's a visual thing. It's written on both sides. Its dimensions happen to be the same as the Holy of Holies and the same as Solomon's porch. And so it's sort of a, uh, a size that would have some significance to them. And the, the thought is in verse 3, this is the curse that goes out over the face of the whole earth. Every thief will be expelled according to the side of the, this side of the scroll. Every perjurer will be expelled according to that side of it. And so he's dealing with individuals now. He's dealt with the priesthood. Now he's dealing with individuals. And he says, we're going to put in, a, in our terms, we're going to clean up their act. We're going to fix things. And so, so on one side, it's written about thieves, the other about liars, and we're going to fix things. And the imagery draws from the book of Leviticus. When leprosy was found in the walls of a house, the house was cursed. Right? The priest would uh, be called and say, well, there's, we would say it's mold today. Right? So mold, uh, we have friends up in Ocala, they had to walk away from their house because mold had uh, rotted the, or taken over on the, the foundation. They had to just leave it. And so they, the priest would come and say, yes, there's, there's mold, there's leprosy, there's something on the wall. He'd come back a week later, if it keeps growing, the house would be condemned. And so that's the, sort of the imagery here. He says, uh, in verse 4, I will send out the curse, says the Lord of hosts. It shall enter the house of the thief, the house of the one who swears falsely by my name. It will remain in the midst of his house and consume it with its timber and stones. And so he says, the whole thing's going to be condemned. So I'm going to deal with these people. It looks like they're getting away with things, but he says, no. Uh, just as the priesthood had to be sanctified, you have to be sanctified as well. And so... He says the law is going out and going to do that. Then you have this woman. Uh, somebody would say she's a basket case. Uh, I wouldn't say that because I'd get in trouble. But uh, in verse 5 of chapter 5 to the end of the chapter, 
you have this this woman, and she's carried by two other women. If you look in verse 9, Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between heaven or earth and heaven. And so we think of a baby being delivered by a stork, while these two women, wings of a stork, and they're taking this basket. In the basket is a woman. And what's her name? And what's she referred to in verse 8? This is wickedness. Okay, so the personification of uh, this woman depicts wickedness. She's put in the basket, a lead uh, cover is put on to hold her in there. So again, this is imagery. We're not talking about a literal woman. We're not talking about two women with Stark's wings. We're talking about what he saw in a dream. Uh, Probably in your lifetime, you've dreamed some strange uh, things as well. You've probably won fights. You've probably won races. You've probably done wonderful things that will never happen in real life. But uh, this is a vision. And so in this vision, God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to remove wickedness from the land. And where am I going to take it? He says, the land of Shinar, which is Babylon. So I'm going to take it there and deposit it. Now, it's interesting just in terms of Israel's history. When they went to Babylon, that was the end of idolatry. They've never, ever gone back into idolatry after Babylon. Some did, of course, in the time of Antiochus Epiphanes, but that's when the Maccabees rebelled and cleansed the temple. But the nation has never really gone back into idolatry. But what they did go into was serving materialism. We have no trouble seeing that throughout the history of the Jewish nation. And so God said, I'm going to take these things and I'm going to deposit them back there. So I'm cleaning up everything. The priesthood is being cleaned up. Individuals are being dealt with. Now the land is being dealt with. And so how is this all going to happen? Well, the Lord says, I'm going to intervene. We'll find out when we get to chapters 9, 10, and 11, some of the other things he's going to do that are not so nice. But here it's all in this dream, in this, in this vision. And then we get to chapter 6, uh, verses 1 to, to 8. Uh, you have these, these four chariots, and their different horse colors are mentioned in uh, verse 2. Now, in chapter 1, we had four horses uh, and four horsemen. Uh, in Revelation 6, you're going to have four horsemen as well. But these uh, chariots, it seems, depict a similar thing to what was depicted in chapter 1, the fact that God knows what's going on and God is at work among the nations. If you were to read the book of Habakkuk chapter 3, Habakkuk in his prayer of praise there talks about the fact that God uses nature and he uses nations to accomplish his purpose. I think when we get to heaven and look back the world's history, we will see the hand of God in so many ways that we don't see from our perspective. I think we'll see it in, in a lot of ways. I think I mentioned last week Daniel 4:17, the most high rules among the kingdoms of men gives authority to whomsoever he will, even the basest of men. It's not all random. God is in control. The Most High sits in the circle of the earth. And so uh, this depicts the Lord knowing what's going on. Back in chapter 1, it says everything that was at rest, talking about the Gentile nations. Now here he's going to deal with the Gentile nations. And so if we look at verse 5, 
The angel answered and said to me, These are the are four spirits of heaven who go out from their station before the Lord of all the earth. The one with the black horses is going to the north country. The white are going after them. The dappled are going toward the south country. Then the strong steeds went out, eager to go that they might walk to and fro throughout the earth. And he said, Go walk to and fro uh, so they are throughout the earth. So they walked to and fro throughout the earth. And he called to me and spoke to me, See, see those who go toward the north country have given rest to my spirit in the north country. So again, it's, it's very um, sort of hard to say, here's exactly what's happening. It's a vision, and he's talking about different directions. In Scripture, uh, the north is always Assyria, and the south is always Egypt, uh, even though geographically... Uh, Egypt is, is next to Israel, is always referred to as the south. Uh, the north is the Assyrians. And so uh, he says these are the directions he's going. But the judgment is poured out on the north. And this is perhaps a, uh, goes along with Ezekiel 38 and 39, when those armies from the north come down and attack Israel. Now it's interesting in Ezekiel 38, There are nations mentioned, and some we don't know for sure what they are. But the ones that we know for sure are now militant Muslim nations. Thirty years ago, they weren't. But today, they're all militant. And you saw, perhaps on Fox News this week, that again, Iran has called for the eradication of Zionism. Just get rid of all the Jews. It's not just they want the land. They just want Jews gone. Hezbollah is calling for the eradication of Zionism. All the Jews gone. There's just a hatred uh, for the Jews, not because they have the land of Israel. Really, it's it's uh, jealousy to a large extent with what they've done in the land. The Palestinians had that land for uh, 2,000 years and did nothing with it. It was desert. And now it is blooming. It's like a rose. It's, uh, things are happening uh, there. And so... Judgment is going to be poured out. And in Ezekiel 38, 39, Russia and uh, Persia, these countries come down from the north and God intervenes in a miraculous way. There's a battle, a battle fought that God fights. Israel doesn't have to fight. God does it. Now, I happen to think that that battle takes place just prior, just before the middle of the tribulation. There's various views. Uh, some believe it will happen before the rapture. Some believe it's part of the Battle of Armageddon. Some believe it's the rebellion at the end of the Millennial Kingdom. But based on, if you were to read Ezekiel 39, what happens after it and the repentance and returning to the Lord, I think it's one of those events that are close to the middle of the tribulation. Uh, feel free to differ or disagree. You can be wrong. It won't bother me at all. <laughs> it's just, uh, But uh, that's what I... I think anyway. And so I think that's here is what's being talked about. God is going to pour out judgment and uh, solve some of these issues. One of the things that Zechariah deals with, and we'll see it as we go through it, is is the end of anti-Semitism. The hatred of the Jew is going to come to an end. He talks later about people taking hold of a Jewish man and saying, let us go with you. Let us identify with you. That never happens today. But there's coming a day when that will come to an end. The hatred of the Jew will be gone and people will recognize that these these are God's people. This is the apple of his eye. 
and they will seek to attach themselves uh, to to the Jews. So that's an overview. You've got to read those chapters. The the high priest is is cleansed. The office is cleansed. The uh, temple is going to be finished, and the two witnesses are identified. The scroll judgment is going to come uh, and be worked out on individuals. Uh, wickedness is going to be removed, and the Gentile nations are going to be dealt with. So those are the visions, eight visions in one night. Now, the only one we didn't deal with is uh, chapter 3, verse 6 to verse 10. And we'll save that for Sunday morning, Lord willing. If the Lord comes, don't worry about it. We'll find out in heaven that I was wrong. But uh, that's where we plan to go Sunday morning, Lord willing. Some nice thoughts about the, about the branch, the Lord, the Messiah. Let's close the word of prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these uh, visions that depict uh, your love for Israel and your plan and purposes for Israel. And we'd wonder how it's all going to come to pass. And yet there's so much in this book of Zechariah that tells us what you are going to, to do. And so we thank you for these visions that he had. We recognize they're, they're not literal uh, in that these things weren't happening on earth, but they are scenes that depict what you are doing uh, relative to this, this earth and relative to your earthly people. And so, Father, help us, too, to enjoy uh, the application, the, the devotional thoughts. We think of ourselves as brands plucked from the burning. Uh, we think of the fact that the, our iniquity has been removed and we've been clothed with garments of righteousness, of salvation. What a wonderful thought. And so, encourage each one, we pray, as we... Uh, Spend time not only in your word, but thinking about your word. Watch over us as we separate, for we pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen.